Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, our passage for this week. Paul is the author, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I mentioned in the introduction last week at our kickoff, I want you to highlight, underline, circle every single time you see Jesus Christ, Jesus our Lord, anytime there's a reference to Christ, circle it, highlight it, underline it, because this is the epistle, the letter that Paul uses the most lofty language to describe Jesus Christ, and we're going to see why. By the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy may have actually even been the scribe of this letter, but he's obviously there with Paul. To the saints and faithful brethren. So what he's saying here by saints and faithful, he's saying not only are you saved and set apart, but you're faithful. I have heard about your faithfulness. Faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just in in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. So we see our author is Paul, called by God to be the ambassador, God's representative to the Gentiles. Now, Paul has not visited the city in Colossae, but Paul was in Ephesus for three years, and many believe Epaphras was probably saved in Ephesus. He went on to Colossae and Laodicea and some of those cities in that that area and took the gospel, may even have been the founder of the church in Colossae. And he is addressing this and letting it know, okay, this is a letter to the church. This is a letter to believers, to saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, physically living in Colossae, and yet spiritually their residence, their identity is in Christ. And we've talked before how there are two realms of existence in which we live. We're in the physical realm here as we're sitting today, physically at Bellevue Baptist Church in the Fellowship Hall. It's where we are physically. But if you're a believer, spiritually, you're in Christ. And the moment you're saved, those two realms intersect. And the longer we walk with Christ, the more aware of and in tune with the spirit realm we should become. And so this is what Paul is painting for them because some heresy was trying to come in and infiltrate the church. And Paul is saying, to understand this, you've got to recognize, no, you're in Christ. You have to know your identity in Christ and that Christ is foremost and preeminent. And as we look to him, we recognize and understand who he is, then we can understand who we are because we are in him and we place our identity in Jesus Christ. We're soldiers of the cross, Christ ambassadors serving in outposts here on earth. What's an outpost? It's a military compound, an outpost of another country placed in a foreign country. So we are outposts of heaven here on earth. And every local congregation, every church should be an outpost, a military compound where the believers are trained and equipped and they go out to represent the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. Our primary focus is to be the kingdom of God. And just like the church in Colossae, the danger for us today is not 
necessarily from without. It can come from within. In fact, I recommended this book before, but Another Gospel by Elisa Childers is an excellent book. The subtitle is A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. I would encourage you, if you've not read this book, to read it. If you're not much of a reader, she has a podcast that's fabulous. You can listen to her podcast where she talks to you about what's happening in our culture. She interviews various believers and experts in theology and apologetics. It's just an excellent resource to kind of keep us acclimated in what's going on in our culture and how some of those things can infiltrate the church because we are impacted by our culture. We're impacted through media, through social media, through the through news. We can be manipulated through the things that we read and hear and see. That's why we have to be grounded in the word of God. Progressive Christianity basically believes it has progressed beyond the word of God. Progressive Christians are the old liberals. You know, the Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. It just gets repackaged. So that's basically what this is. It's liberalism repackaged, and it's called progressive Christianity, but there's nothing Christian about it because it denies the inerrancy of the word of God, denies the gospel by the death of Christ on the cross. It's all focused on social justice and let's just love each other regardless of what you think or how you live. I'm going to accept you because your truth is good for you. That's basically progressive Christianity. But that's not what God's word says. And we know that his word is truth, that there is no other truth apart from God apart from Jesus Christ, so we go to his word. I was listening to Paige Brown recently. She is a Bible teacher in Nashville. She teaches for West End Community Church, and she's teaching through 1 Samuel this semester. And I was listening to her message, and she had them go back and look at the Ten Commandments. And I thought, gosh, we don't talk about the Ten Commandments very often. You know, it's, we just, oh, that's something from antiquity, but just think about it. God told them in Exodus 20, these are the 10 basic commands that you are to obey. Now, God's word is true, it's active, it is living, and it is forever. It does not pass away. So the 10 commandments are just as pertinent for us today as they were when God first gave them through Moses to the Israelites. And what did he say the first one was? Have no other gods before me. No idols, no graven image. Specifically, what did he say in those verses in Exodus 20? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. Now, why is it important that we not have any graven images, no idols? Because the idol will take his place in our hearts. And what did it just say? You're not to have any other gods before me. So we're not to have any graven images, no idol. God is to be foremost in our hearts and in our lives. We're not to take his name in vain because his name is holy. And he has given us that name. We now are branded written on the hands of Christ. Our names are written down. We are in Christ Jesus. We're to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. We're to honor our father and mother. We're not to murder. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to steal. We're not to lie or bear false witness. We're not to covet. And so often, one of the points she made was, we think murder and adultery are worse than taking God's name in vain or having an idol in our life. And yet, that's not what God says. And the statement she made that shook me was, 
Maybe the reason God's word is no big deal to us is because God is not a big deal to us. That is part of what Paul is dealing with in his letter to the Colossians. That's why he's going to such great lengths to describe the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom that has come down from heaven to earth. Jesus himself said he had come to bring his kingdom to earth, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, just as we've got the liberals over here with progressive Christianity and those who would deny the word of God is inerrant, you've got the fundamentalist on the other side of the spectrum who are telling you that you've got to live legalistically by their rules and you've got to believe exactly the way they believe and do it exactly the way they believe or you're a heretic. Well, they're equally wrong errors at opposite ends of the spectrum. But the gospel is not a midpoint, as we talked about last week in our kickoff. As Tim Keller said, it's a totally different way of living. It's the gospel way. It's not the middle of two errors. It is a holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy, H-O-L-Y, different way of living than the world. Because we have a new way of thinking, we have a new value system, because we belong to Jesus Christ and not to this world. So he moves on in verse 3 and begins to give thanks as he's praying for them because of their faithfulness. We see in verse 3 he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So he points out that he's already been praying for them even though he's never been there. Even though he's never met these people, he prays for them. And I want you to watch. Thanksgiving is a theme in the book of Colossians. So be looking for that as well. And I would encourage you to highlight or underline every time he talks about Thanksgiving or being grateful, we are to do that. Then he commends them in verse four for their faith and then for their love for the saints. He's commending them for their faith in Christ. And Jesus Christ, Christ literally means Messiah, the anointed one. He was the one all of the Old Testament pointed to. He was the one that we studied about in Genesis last semester, 1 through 11, that was first promised in Genesis 3.15. The Satan crusher, the one who would come through the seed of woman and crush the head of the enemy. And he has done that for us, setting us free from the sin debt that we owe and he paid that debt for us on the, on the cross. And I mentioned that Jesus said his kingdom has now come near. And he commissioned his disciples as they went out. Everywhere you go, let people know the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the gospel, literally, you know, this means good news, right? It's euangelion in the Greek. And listen to what uh, the book, the author of reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus said. The Greek word for gospel, euangelion, literally good news, in the New Testament also comes from terminology that was used in regards to kings and their dominions. When a new king was crowned, euangelion was the announcement that the monarch had taken the throne, that a new kingdom had taken power. So that's exactly what the gospel is. It is us as believers, like Paul, going everywhere we can to tell people a new kingdom has come. There's a new king. It's Jesus Christ, and he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he has come once, and he paid our sin debt to set us free so that we can be back in right relationship with God the Father. And greater news, he's coming back. He's coming back for us. And we need to be telling everybody the good news of the gospel because A new kingdom has come. There is a new king. Jesus Christ has already conquered death, hell, the grave, and Satan. 
Now, we are still walking in hostile territory. We're not experiencing the full revelation of all that that victory entails for us, but we will one day. We will one day. And so we long for that day, and that's what he talks about. When he, and when he tells them, too, that they, they're going to look forward to what is to come, and that, that's the hope that we have because of the gospel, because it is good news. But then he commends them for their love for the saints. You know, the Christian has a double loyalty, a loyalty to Christ and a loyalty to men. The Christian faith is not only a conviction of the mind, it's also an outflow of the heart. It's not only correct thought, it is loving conduct. That's from William Barclay. But we need to be careful that we don't get the great commands backwards. We're told the greatest command, the first command, is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That lines up with the first four of the Ten Commandments. Then we're told to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and that lines up with the next six of the Ten Commandments. But what has happened in our culture is that people have flipped the commandments. And many people who claim to be believers think loving your neighbor is more important than loving and honoring and pleasing God. But we're not loving our neighbor in the best sense of the word of love if we're not first loving God. Because it isn't love to tell them something that's untrue and that would be harmful to them. So we have to love God first, and our allegiance has to be to him and to his word and making sure that our lives line up with the truth he has given us in his word, and then we share that truth out of love for our fellow man because we want them to experience the life, the abundant life that we have because we're in Christ Jesus, the freedom we're experiencing from sin and bondage because we have now chosen Christ. And like Paul, we're a bond slave of Jesus Christ. We have willingly attached ourselves to Christ so that we are free of this world and of the sin that so easily entangled us. We must love the Lord first, and then we will love our neighbor because God is love. And that word for love there is God's agape love. He's telling them we're to love like God loves. We're to love sacrificially. We're to care enough about our fellow man that when things are difficult in their life, we come alongside them. We show up. We don't just text and say, let me know if you need anything. <laughs> we drop a meal off at the front door and leave. Or we come to the hospital like somebody, several people did for us when we were there for almost six weeks with my dad. So precious. We just call and say, hey, I'm coming up. I'm going to pull up in front of the hospital. I've got something for you guys. And I would go down and just get to get a hug from someone and take a bag of snacks back up to the hospital room because we were literally living there um, for almost six weeks before my dad went to be with the Lord. And those people who did that, that is an act of love. That is coming alongside a fellow believer and loving them like you want to be loved, which is exactly what we're commanded to do. And it convicted me, Donna, not to just call and say, well, if there's anything I can do, let me know, but to just show up, just to be there. And sometimes you don't even need to bring anything or say anything. You just need to be there. They just need your presence. They just need another believer to join in with them and experience their grief, their joy, their struggle, whatever it may be, to just be with one another. 
And why do we do this? Verse 5 tells us, because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. We have hope. (laughs) And what is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for. We know it's coming because every single promise that God made in the Old Testament has been fulfilled. The only ones yet to be fulfilled have to do with Christ's second coming and the new heavens and the new earth. So we know because God has fulfilled every other promise that the prophecies about the second coming of Christ and all that God has prepared for us are true. So we have the assurance by faith. We know it's coming. And because we have that hope in what is yet to come, we live in a world that's still broken and hurting. We live in a world where we're still attacked by fear and discouragement, where fiery darts come into us and cause us to want to pull away and not engage and not be involved. Why would the enemy want you not to be here today? Because he knows you're going to be sitting under the word of God. He knows that you're going to be encouraged by other women. He knows that he's going to lose some of the hold he's got over your mind and your heart if you're sitting in the word of God, studying the word of God, being encouraged by other women. That's why he fights you to keep you from being here. Why does he try to keep you from reading your Bible through? Why does he discourage you and say, oh, you can't do it. That works for everybody else. You can't read your Bible. That's legalistic anyway. You don't need to read it every day. Just open it up and read when you can. A verse here or there, you know, that'll do. Why does he want you to do that? Because he knows the power of the living word of God. That it is God breathed and it is still breathing. And that when you open this word, you are encountering the living God. His word is alive. And his word comes down in us and it changes us from the inside out. That's why we study his word. Because we are prone to wander. Because our flesh is easily led astray. But when we are feeding our spirit man and we are in tune with the Holy Spirit and we have been immersing our minds in the word of God, it changes the way we think, which changes the way we act, and it changes our perspective. We gain a kingdom perspective. We begin to live for eternity. We live every day for that day. And that gives us incredible hope because I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I have enough strength and grace for today. God doesn't promise me grace today for tomorrow. He tells me he'll give it to me tomorrow when I need it. (laughs) Or that thing that you're worried about that might happen and you're afraid you're not going to be able to deal with it or face it, you can't deal with it today. Number one, it hasn't happened yet. It's a what if, (laughs) right? And we... We refute the what ifs with the what is from the word of God that he has promised he will never leave me nor forsake me. So whatever I face, he is there with me. And whatever I have to face, he will face with me and through me so I can trust him because I don't have to be able, he is able, right? Those are the conversations I have with myself. I encourage you to have those conversations with yourself too based on the word of God because that's what lifts us up above the storm lifts us up above the lies of the evil one because the evil one Jesus said is a liar all he can do is lie he's the father of lies his very nature is to lie that's why we have to know the truth of God's word we have that hope Richard Melick in his commentary said Paul believed that the hope offered in Christ inspires assurance and as a result produces spiritual fruit The basis of believing Christ, that's faith, and serving others, love, is that this world is not the end. There is an afterlife where the deeds done here will be evaluated and rewarded. Christians have an understanding of the rewards and blessings of heaven. 
Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has the mind conceived all that God has prepared for those who love him. And some of you have a loved one in heaven, and it's been a fairly recent departure, and that's painful. But how glorious to begin to try to imagine what they're experiencing and what we have to look forward to. Dana mentioned it. Some of them are already, they've joined that great cloud of witnesses, and they're literally cheering us on from the other side. I want to walk faithfully, and I want to walk worthy of my Savior until I'm on the other side, should Jesus tarry his coming, and I'm able to cheer others on from the other side as well. The gospel is living. It will constantly be moving and bearing fruit. Paul commends Epaphras and the truth of his teaching and assures the Colossians that they can trust him. He also mentions Epaphras in Colossians 4, um, verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, why is Paul commending Epaphras? Well, he's probably the founder of the church, but if not the founder, was a primary elder, teacher, preacher in the church. He is the one who had taken the gospel to this area. And Paul is commending him as he's going back with this letter to say, hey, he is a faithful steward of the word of God. You can believe him. You're hearing heresy. If there's somebody telling you something other than what Epaphras has taught you, that's not true. Epaphras is giving you the gospel. We have to be aware that the world is going to be trying to lure us too. The culture is going to try to penetrate the church. And we've got to refuse that by being so in tune with the Spirit and so immersed in God's Word that we immediately recognize it as an error. We immediately hear the lie, know what it is. You know, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom and folly are personified. And if you've read verses 1 through 9, you know that both of them call out to people passing by. But I want you to listen to Proverbs 9, 13 through 18, as it describes folly. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. So she's calling to those who are on the way of God, those who are making their path straight. They're wanting to do the right thing. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. There is a story, a couple of them, from Greek mythology that really give us a picture of this lure of folly and the world. The Song of the Siren has been a literary illustration of the lure of folly. In fact, in literature, there are two men who overcame the call of the sirens, Ulysses in the Odyssey and Orpheus in Argonautica, book four. The siren in Greek mythology was a creature, half bird and half woman, who lured sailors 
to their destruction. So the sirens would start singing and the sailors would be just drawn to this island where they would go to their death. So you can see that's the picture of folly calling out, trying to lure us away from the path to which God has called us. Max Anders, in his commentary, put it like this. Ulysses, warned of the fatal effect of the siren's song, remained fascinated with the prospect of hearing the beautiful sounds with his own ears. Understanding the human frailties of his crew and himself, Ulysses plugged the sailor's ears with beeswax and then had himself lashed or tied to the ship's mast. As the ship sailed past the siren's rocky home, the sailors were unaffected by the sweet-sounding songs while Ulysses was physically restrained from acting on the desires that stirred within him. But the book tells that he pulled against that wanting. He was so drawn to the song of the siren that it literally the, the ropes cut into his flesh because he was trying so hard to get away. And yet the sailors didn't stop rowing because their ears were stopped up. But listen to Orpheus a musician of legendary renown, took a different approach to escape the siren snare. When the Argonauts sailed into the treacherous waters surrounding the deadly isle, Orpheus began to play and sing. The exquisite beauty of Orpheus's music was so genuine and compelling that the sirens no longer held any appeal for the crew. It's exactly what Paul is doing in the letter to the Colossians. He is holding up Christ and making him so beautiful, so holy, so magnificent that they are not going to be lured by the lies of the evil one, the heresies that are being taught in their midst. They are going to see Christ in all of his glory and in the truth of his word, and they are not going to turn to the right or to the left. He holds him up, and we too must hold up something or someone more beautiful. That is why we're to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, because when Christ is preeminent, which we'll be looking at next week, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.